We are going to spend some time today in a letter written by Paul to the church in Corinth. We're going to read 1 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, verses 1 through 13. That's a lot of verses, and I'm going to read the whole thing. Uh, I, I just think that it's important that we get the entirety of the narrative. And then we're going to go back, and we're going to try to, to d- dissect what we have read. So if you will, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 13. I'll be in the ESV version. There's a Bible under your seat if you'd like to use that. It is on page 954, 954 in your Bible under your seat. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 13. When you have it, say amen. Amen. If you're still trying to get there, say, wait on me. Uh, We'll wait. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 13. Paul says this. He says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of the kind not tolerated even among the pagans for a man has his father's wife. And you, you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this thing be removed from among you for though absent in body, I am present in the spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. So when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Paul says, your boasting is not good. Do you know that even a little leaven leavens the whole lump? He says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul says, I wrote to you in my last letter not to associate with the sexually immoral people, not at all, meaning sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers and idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. Paul says, but now, somebody say, but now. But now now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler. He says not even to eat with such a one. Paul says don't even get a sandwich with him. Verse 12, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. I'm I'm just not sure that Pastor Lance and Jesus understood what I meant when I said, give me something easy to preach, you know, something with not a whole lot of tension, you know, something that's easy to understand and navigate. I don't think they quite got what I meant because they decided to give us a text to unpack on correction. This is a complicated text that has a lot of different moving parts 
And I really believe in order to understand this text, you really have to understand the location of the church that Paul is writing to because so often it's not what you are, but where you are that causes problems. And so in a few moments, I'm going to give you the fill in the blank, but I want to start by really kind of grounding into the location. I really want, we've been talking about Corinth for several weeks, but I really need you to understand this city of Corinth. Corinth is a port city, and it is strategically located on a north-south trade route that has three strategic harbors that are prominent located on it. And so this means that it is a commercial place where merchants from all over the world could come and sell all manner of goods and, and services. For its time, it was among the largest, most wealthy, most beautiful, most industrious, most technologically advanced cities in the world. And not only that, but it was super diverse. It is a, a hybrid of identities. It is a place where Greek culture and language and religion has been reshaped by Roman colonization. Corinth is a place of religious variety. That means you could walk into Corinth and whatever type of church you wanted to go to, you could find. If you like a church that sings hymns and with a piano, you can find that kind of church. If you want to go to a church where the pastors wear skinny jeans and sneakers, well, you can find that type of church in Corinth. And you can find the type of church that serves whatever God you wanted to call God, from the, the Greek and Roman gods from their pantheon to far eastern gods like the Egyptian gods, Isis and Osiris. And Corinth was a place that was really, really good for hosting large international events. Corinth was the location of the Isthmus Games, which are an, a huge athletic festival. The only festival bigger than that at the time was the Olympics themselves, and they would host the Isthmus Games every two years. And so by the time the Apostle Paul gets to Corinth, Corinth has the largest population in Greece composed primarily of Greeks, but there are also Jews and Romans and all manner of Eastern peoples. And not only is it diverse ethnically, but it is diverse ideologically. It is diverse in thought and idea and in perspective. See, sometimes it's not what you are, it's where you are. And so you have this formula in Corinth where Corinth becomes a meeting point for, for all kinds of people. And there's all kinds of money flowing in and out of Corinth. And that means that Corinth becomes a place that has something for everyone. That is to say, whatever you wanted, you could find in Corinth. Whatever you enjoyed, whatever you had a taste for, you could acquire in Corinth. You could walk into Corinth and make money that you couldn't make anywhere else in the world. You could walk into Corinth broke and come out a wealthy man, you could taste things you had never tasted before and witness things that you couldn't see any other place in the world. You could break rules and norms in Corinth that if you tried that mess at home, your mama would go upside your head with a slipper, but in Corinth, you could get away with it because anything goes in Corinth. You will find that there are many Corinth-like places today. Any place that has a lot of economic travel, a lot of international trade, a lot of commerce, a lot of different people groups, a lot of different ideas, those places tend to just have a lot going on. Can I be transparent? I've been to a few Corinth-like places. 
I went to Thailand many, 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 many years ago, and uh, I decided I was gonna go get a massage. And about 10 minutes into that massage, the, the lovely lady that was giving me the massage, she leaned over and whispered in my ear, and I will paraphrase for the sake of this being a family church, and explained to me that the massage could culminate in more than a massage if I wanted. And I would love to st stand here and tell you that I didn't even consider it, that I didn't even think about it. And if she had been an ugly woman, Maybe I wouldn't have been tempted. <laughs> Had I been a married man, maybe I wouldn't have been tempted, but she was lovely to behold and I was single and celibate. See, some of y'all have been married so long you didn't forgot about those single celibate years. I'm telling you, they're hard. <laughs> Had I been in my own country, in my own city, maybe I wouldn't have been tempted, but you'll find when you are far from accountability, and far from consequence, and far from support, and in a place where things are okay that are not normally okay, when you are presented with the opportunity to taste something you have never tasted before, I confess, I thought about it. And to buy myself time, I, I told her, I said, well, I paid for an hour-long massage, so ask me again in 45 minutes. We've only been here 10 minutes. And fortunately, God always gives us a way out. And my buddy who had traveled to Thailand with me, he called me. He's also a pastor. He wanted to make sure that I had made it to the massage parlor. And I felt so convicted when he called me. I just started gathering my stuff out of the room and said, I'm just going to go. <laughs> but I say that to say that when I think about the church in Corinth, I understand how the level to which temptation to do wrong is experienced differently, not based on who you are, but based on where you are. The church in Corinth had been planted by Paul between 50 and 51 AD, and while he was there, he was pouring into them and like building them up and discipling them and ministering to them. And there's, there's nothing quite like that first season of being a believer. Y'all remember your first season? of being like that first time that you really committed to Jesus and man, you were on fire for the Lord. I mean, everything that came out your mouth was scripture. You couldn't, somebody couldn't say good morning to you without you saying hallelujah, thank you, Jesus, praise the Lord. Like you were on fire. Every song you listened to was a Jesus song. You understand? You were on fire. But as time went on, that fire ebbed and flowed, didn't it? And there were times where you were more excited and more on fire and more passionate about God. And then there were times where you had to drag yourself out of bed just to come to church. We find that our young people experience this when they go up to summer camp, they go up to Hume, and they come back on fire for like two weeks. <laughs> and then they come back and they integrate back into the rhythm of their life and the culture in the world that they live in and they, they come back to the advent and accessibility of the internet and they come back to a diverse array of ideas and morality and so often it seems like that, that fire that they caught on the mountaintop, it seems to dwindle 
and in some even die. And for the church in Corinth, eventually, when Paul said, okay, I have to leave you now and continue planting other churches, it seems like that that church that was situated really in the belly of Babylon, a church that had some Jews but was mostly Gentile converts, it seemed like their flames started to dwindle and die. And the challenge for a church comprised mostly of Gentiles is that Gentiles did not come into the faith with the protection of ignorance. Ignorance can be a protector. When I think about the way ignorance can protect, I think of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And what was it that the serpent said to them when trying to tempt them? He said, for God knows that when you eat from this tree, It's just going to open your eyes and you will know good and evil. Adam and Eve had never known evil. They had only ever known good. But once they ate from that fruit, see, you can't untaste things that you've tasted. You can't unsee things that you've seen. And many of these Gentile converts in the church of Corinth had come from backgrounds where they had already been exposed to all kinds of evil. And so as adults, they hear the gospel and they commit to the gospel and they want to follow Jesus, but they come into the faith like many of us having already perceived wickedness and not having been raised with the same standards of morality that the Jewish people had. See, the Jewish people had grown up their whole lives with nothing but rules, rules and regulations, but not for the Gentiles. And so when Paul left, the church in Corinth had to contend with the influences of where it was and its accessibility to sin and its proximity to sin that was housed in its geographic location. My grandmother would say it very simply. She'd say, if you lay down with dogs, you'll get up with fleas. And the struggle that the people of the Corinthian church had was that they started to believe that they could live dual lives. And the pastor Paul, Paul the apostle, he gets the word that in the Corinthian church, a scandal is broken out. A scandal that likely started with an idea, just one idea. The problem is it wasn't God's idea. It was a common Greek idea. It was this idea that your flesh was wholly separate from your spirit. And therefore, I can behave how I want with my flesh as long as I still do spiritual things. And I find that this ideology still exists in the church today. That as long as I, as long as I go to church and, you know, I pray over my meal and I lift a hand in worship, as long as I occasionally read my Bible and pay my tithes that I can do whatever I want with my body and there won't be any consequences. I wasn't in the church of Corinth back then, but I imagine that this this compromise of the Corinthian church, that it started off small. I'll just sin a little bit, just a little sin. It's not that big of a deal. And the problem is a little bit of compromise when soaked in comparison. So we're not as bad as them over there. We're not doing what they're doing way over there. That's too far. We're not doing that. Compromise that's soaked in comparison will convince us that what we're doing is all right. And as the culture around the Corinthian church began to fester within the Corinthian Christians, it grew into pride. The Corinthian church was a proud church. 
proud of their intellectualism, proud of their innovative thought, proud of their enlightened perspective and ideological frame of mind, so proud that at best they assumed that their ideas for how they should live life were also God's ideas of how they should live life. And at worst, they assumed that their ideas were better than God's. You'll find that sin is always rooted in pride. Either in the idea that living my life the way I want to live it is also the way God wants me to live it, or even assuming that we know better than God. And so from this place of pride and sin, a scandal breaks out in the Corinthian church, and Paul finds out and sends a scathing letter demonstrating the right kind of correction. Paul writes to this church, and Paul says, it is actually reported. I want to know who reported. That's, that's what I want. When I get to heaven, I'm going to ask, Paul, who told on the Corinthian church? Like, who was it that, that told on the Corinthian church? Paul says, it is actually recorded, reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of the kind not even tolerated by the pagans. He says, the pagans don't even do what you're doing. He says, for a man has his father's wife. Ah, there's the scandal. The term sexual immorality is the ancient Greek word pornea. It is from that word that we get the word pornography. And it broadly refers to all types of sexual activity that exist outside of marriage. And so apparently somebody was having an ongoing sexual relationship either as a married couple or living together with his stepmother his father's wife. Yikes. And Paul uses this language. He says he has his father's wife. To have is a euphemism that describes an ongoing, continuous, enduring sexual relationship. That just means that this wasn't just a fleeting fancy, that this wasn't just a one-night stand, that this wasn't just we had a little too much alcohol and made a mistake. No, that this was an ongoing, intentional engagement of inappropriate behavior with his father's wife. And Paul says, not only that, he says in verse 2, but you're arrogant about it. You're proud of it. This is not like you, you messed up and you, like, you felt guilty and you felt convicted and you felt like you needed to do something else. No, instead, you're wearing your sin like a badge of honor. Paul says, ought you not to mourn? Paul was concerned because these Corinthians seem to take sin lightly. They seem to be unconcerned about it. And what Paul is articulating is that so often sin is not a matter of simple wrong behavior. Sin is always a matter of wrong thinking. And as extreme as this example is of a man being with his father's wife, it's easy to say, oh, I would never do such a thing. Never would I ever. I wouldn't even think about it. But the reality is that because we are all broken people, because we are all tainted by sin, as broken people, we are all susceptible to wrong thinking, and wrong thinking can lead to grotesque forms of sin. This is why when Paul wrote to the church in Rome, he said in Romans 12 and 2, he said, do not be conformed 
to this world, but be transformed, that means something has to change. That means something that is natural to you, your natural way of being, your natural way of behaving, your natural way of thinking, it has to change. He says, be transformed. He doesn't say by beating yourself over the head with rules. He says, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds that you may discern and test what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. I love this verse because it communicates two things. It communicates one, that God's will is good and acceptable and perfect. What does that mean? It means that it doesn't need your input. God does not need you to contribute to shaping his will. And what that means is that his will is already what it's supposed to be. And so we can just trust his will for our lives, even when it is not synonymous with our own wills for our life. The second thing that we see is that if we are not constantly allowing our minds to be renewed, that we are not in a good position to discern God's good and perfect and acceptable will, and we can miss the mark and find ourselves living in sin. When I look at the Corinthians, I suspect that at least some of them really didn't believe that they were living so far away from God's will. They might have actually believed that what they were doing was just fine. And you and I, we read this and we think, how can anyone think that a man being with his father's wife is okay? Like, how does anybody think that that's acceptable? How do they not know this is wrong? And I would submit to you that a combination of a culture with a different value set being around them and the spirit of pride being within them and them not constantly allowing their minds to be renewed is always a recipe for you to end up far from God's will. When was the last time you just said, Lord, I'm trying to do this Christian thing right. I think I kind of got it on lock. I'm trying to do a good job. But Lord, because I know I'm susceptible to sin, because I know I'm susceptible to fallible thinking, Lord, renew my mind. Walk up and down the pathways of my brain and start clearing things out that are not like you. Lord, renew my mind. Because what if there are ways that you and I are living that are not God's perfect will? What are the ways that maybe we might be thinking about things that make us vulnerable to sin? And what I need for you to understand is that none of us are above the sin of pride. And so none of us can afford to assume that we've got it all figured out. All of us must be humble enough to say, Lord, search me and help me identify the ways that pride and sin are still at work in my life. Fix me, God, so that I don't end up with my father's wife. And so Paul writes to the church and he says, this is not acceptable. We're not going to do this here, right? And then he says this series of things that is, that is rough, that is hard to deal with. Look at verse two. He says, let him who has done this be removed from you. Then he goes on in verse four. He says, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with you with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Yikes, Paul. It gets even more intense. Jump down to verse nine. 
I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, verse 11, but now I'm writing to you, I'm telling you, don't associate with somebody who has the name of somebody else that has done any of these evil things like sexual immorality or greed or idolatry or reviling or drunkardness or swindling. He says, don't even eat with them. Don't even find yourself at the Applebee's with them. Pastor Lance, you really could have given me a nice, easy passage to deal with. Something could have preached a good Samaritan or something. We'd be on our way out by now. What do we do with this? What do we do with this text? Did he just say, throw this man out of the church? Is that what we're supposed to do when people are living in sin? I will tell you, the language in this chapter is some of the most confrontational language in the New Testament church. Hand him over to Satan. Cleanse yourself of this person. Judge those inside. Expel the evil person. You might read this and think, well, where, where is the love and where is the grace and where is the mercy? Aren't we all sinners? How can we pass judgment like this? Surely the most loving thing is to, you know, to keep warning them to repent, but, but maintain relationship. Like, haven't we all heard? Hate the sin, love the sinner. What do we do with this? And this is where we really have to understand how to approach a text, right? And the first thing that we have to do is we have to keep in mind that this is a letter. It is written from a specific person to a specific group of people in a specific location, dealing with a specific set of circumstances at a specific time. And what that means is when we look at the text, we are looking for the principle, that means the core truth that Paul wanted the first people who read this letter to understand. And so the principle, the core truth, is this that Paul is reminding these believers that, that Christianity is integrated, that we are integrated beings. That means what one part of us does affects the other part of us. That means our actions and our, our spirituality are integrally tied together. Paul is arguing that the church is all tied together, and that means what one person does impacts the rest of the church. It's like cancer. He uses this example of yeast, he says a little bit of yeast can impact the whole loaf. I don't know if we have any bakers in here, but you know just a little bit of yeast. And just a side note, I don't know if we actually have any bakers in here, but if we do, I love cinnamon rolls and my birthday's in March. That was from the Lord. That was from the Lord. Just want you to receive it. So the principle here is that if we don't address blatant sin, and if instead we actually, like we're praising sin, it's a bad role model for others in a bad way and eventually the whole family becomes infected. In fact, here's your fill in the blank. Somebody say, finally. <laughs> your fill in the blank is our conduct affects others. It's very simple, our conduct affects others. So here, the, the principle here is, is really the, the importance of correction in the church. Because a church where healthy correction does not exist is a church that's likely to fall into immorality. Now, the application of this in the 21st century is a little more, is a little more tricky. Because the principle of the text of correction is prescriptive. That means that the principle, the core truth, that it means to us today what it meant to them when they first read it. 
We have to be willing to engage in correction as a family. But the application of this text is more descriptive. That means that it shows us what the principle looks like in application in that specific circumstance. And it's a circumstance that we don't have all the information for. And so the question then is, should we read this and then decide to, to drag every person that sins out of the church, throw them in the parking lot, and never talk to them again? No, probably not. And how do we know this? Because if Paul had been suggesting that we kick out every person who sins out of the church, th there would be no church in Corinth. You understand? If I started going up and down this aisle and saying we're going to kick out every sinner, it'd be one little old lady left in this church. Am I right about it? Somebody's Nana and everybody else would meet me in the parking lot. We also, we also see so many examples of Jesus discipling and pouring into people who are struggling with bad behavior and helping pull them into the fullness of who he has called them to be. And anytime we read any piece of scripture, we have to read it through the lens of who Jesus was, what he said, and what he did. However, are there times and moments and specific circumstances where church leadership might need to say, hey, because of this behavior and the way it's impacting the family, it is no longer appropriate for you to be here at this time. Yes, sometimes that is appropriate. And so then the question is, well, well pastor, when are those times? When are, we supposed to, when are we supposed to do that sort of thing? There are a couple things that I would submit to you. I would say that first and foremost, it is a case-by-case -case basis. And what that really means is that we need to understand that asking somebody to leave the church is a big deal and never something we should enter into lightly. Second, when we look at this specific example in our text, we get the indication from the text that this is this man who is, who is being removed from the church, that he is a man who has repeatedly and intentionally engaged in sin in a way that impacted the community in a major way. It, it, it seems like this is a man who refused to come to the table to work through the issue. It seems that he decided that he was going to do this egregious thing the way he wanted, and that was that. And so when we look at the text, what we see is Paul has an extreme reaction to an extreme behavior by somebody with an extremely unrepentant heart. This does not appear to be somebody who is who's like struggling with something and, and trying to do and get better. This does not appear to be somebody who is like trying to work through their brokenness and like trying to grow. This appears to be somebody who is determined to do their own thing in their own way and it hurts the family. And so anytime we're thinking about, well, well, who is a good candidate for saying, hey, this is not a good place for you to be at this time? It, it is somebody like this. It is somebody who is intentionally, repeatedly engaging in harmful and sinful behavior and refusing to try to work through, refusing to even acknowledge that it's an issue. What we're dealing with, church, is having to walk between two guardrails and there's tension in this in-between space because on the one side we have this excessive liberality 
where, where the church of Corinth just decided, you know what, we're going to make up our own rules. We're going to do what we, what we want to do, what feels good to us, what we're comfortable with. We will follow the rules that we think should be rules. And they just did what they wanted. But then on the other side, it is very easy for us to lean into judgmentalism where we are abusive and we are mean and we are hateful to people. And so the question then becomes, so how do I determine judgmentalism versus healthy correction? The first thing I tell you is you have to look at your motivation for bringing the correction. Because for all the harshness of of Paul's language in this text, I don't want you to miss this little detail that gives Paul's why. Paul isn't just telling the church leaders to discipline this man for the sake of it. Look at verse 5. He says, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. The the, the motivation for correction must always be salvation. I'm going to say it again. The motivation for correction must always be salvation. Paul says, discipline this man. Allow him to experience what it is like to not be covered by the church since he doesn't seem to want to be covered by the church anyway so that maybe before the end, maybe he'll realize that God's way is better. Maybe he'll realize God's love for him and choose Jesus in the same way that Jesus chooses him. What we see is that Paul is hoping this man comes back. And so when we think about correction, we need to understand that the motivation for correction must also always be reconciliation. Paul wanted this man to come back because the goal of correction is testimony. The goal of the correction is to, I can't wait for you to come through this. I can't wait for you to be set free. I can't wait for you to be delivered. I can't wait for you to be able to tell people, look what the Lord has brought me through. Look what the Lord has brought me out of. Look at how he loved me even while I was yet a sinner. The goal of my correction is testimony so that we can say what the Lord has done. Here's the thing. There is a right and a wrong way for churches to do correction. And although this text is complicated and even painful, it really highlights what is the right way that we should do correction. And so we need to look at it as an example. We need to be clear that Paul is offering correction to a church that he planted in Corinth. You notice he doesn't send this letter to the governor of Corinth, to the mayor of Corinth, to the church down the street from the church that he planted in Corinth. Why? Because correction is always best in the context of deep relationship. The Corinthian Christians were Paul's people. The folks that he had poured into, that he had loved on, that he had prayed for. Notice in the text, he says, throw the man out. But in your text, do you see him even mention the woman? He doesn't say anything about her. And scholars believe that that is because The woman was likely not a Christian and probably not a member of the church of Corinth. Paul says, I don't know that lady. I don't have anything to say about her. And what we know is that proximity is required when correction is being brought. Sometimes it's not 
what you are, it is where you are. It is your proximity to the person that you're offering correction to. Somebody asked me recently, Pastor Judah, what do you think of Pastor so-and-so down there at such-and-such church and what they're doing over at that church? I said, nothing. I don't know that man, and I don't go to that church. I don't have anything to say. I don't have any, I'm not in a position to bring correction to them over there. I don't know them. I don't have relationship with them. This is where I have relationship. We need to pay attention to what Paul is doing. Notice that when he calls them to do discipline, when he calls them to correct this man, he has them do it in a team format, in a family format. That means it's not just one leader that decided, well, I don't like you, so I'm throwing you out of my church as a punishment, right? No, 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 we have to have multiple, multiple eyes and multiple voices at the table for these kinds of big decisions. That's why at Bridgeway, we have a senior leadership team, a financial advisory team, an elder board. This is because we believe that there need to be multiple voices contributing to big church decisions, especially when it comes to correction, because this is how we prevent abuse. This is how we keep correction from becoming, I just disagree with you, and because I have power, I'm punishing you because we disagree. And what we see is that correction in the context of relationship has a far more likely chance of being healthy because when the context is relationship, hopefully the context is love. I'm telling you this because I love you. I'm telling you this because I care about you. I'm telling you this because I want God's dream for you. I'm telling you this because I believe God is going to use you and because I believe you can be better. And when the context of correction is deep relationship, it takes into account the context of the person being corrected. See, the type of correction that I bring to somebody who is new to the church, new to their faith, is going to look different than the type of correction I bring to somebody who's been traveling with the Lord for a long time. The type of correction I bring to a church leader is going to be different than the type that I bring to a church visitor. And when you have deep relationship with somebody, the context of your correction can take into account all of the nuanced circumstances around that person. So yes, I may have to call you out about your pornography addiction, but hopefully if I know you, I can recognize that maybe that addiction is rooted in loneliness. You're lonely. And so that's gonna help me when I offer support as I bring correction, because you should not offer correction if you are not prepared to bring support. If you are not prepared to say, I'm going to link arms with you, I'm going to throw my arm around you, and we're going to walk this thing together, I, I, I'm going to pray for you, I'm going to find books, I'm going to help you, I'm going to support you, I'm going to send you links, I'm going to call you and check up on you. If you're struggling, you can call me. If you are not prepared to bring support, it may not be appropriate for you to bring correction because correction always needs to be undergirded by support. And so what we see in this text is that between liberality and judgmentalism, there's actually a lot of middle room in which we can walk. And it's a case-by-case -case basis because motivation matters and, and relationship matters and context matters. The reality is that blatant sin that is held up by pride must be addressed by the church because Christianity is a team sport. And Paul is telling the church, he's telling them to do discipline. You know what he's not saying? He's not saying everybody be jerks. He's not saying be mean. He's not saying be nasty. He's not saying highlight the, the, the blatant sin that you don't struggle with. Y'all ever notice how we do that? 
The, the sin we get most loudest about is the sin that we don't wrestle with. You've never heard an alcoholic yelling at another alcoholic, ever. <laughs> we approach it gently and humbly. Come here, come here, brother, right? The leaders in this church were causing a problem because they were not addressing the issues. And Paul says, this is how you do it. And, and this is what I will tell you. When we, when we do correction right, restoration is the fruit. How do we know? Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 6 through 8. Paul says, for such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed with excessive sorrow, so I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. This is the same Paul writing to the same church. And some scholars think that the man that Paul is speaking to in this passage, speaking of in this passage of 2 Corinthians, the same, the same man that he is telling the church, he's telling them to, to comfort and to forgive and to reaffirm him and to love him and to build him back up is the same man that Paul had instructed this church to discipline in his previous letter. What we then would see is that it worked. That as hard as it was to say, sir, what you are doing does not work and you cannot continue to do it here. As hard as that was, as painful as it was, that it worked. Because this man at some point said, you know what? I was tripping. I was messing up. And Lord, I just want to come back to you. And I just want to get my stuff together. And he came back to the church with humility. And when he did, Paul tells them, he said, you love that boy. When he comes back, throw your arms around him. Kiss him on his cheek. Tell him, I'm glad you're back. We missed you. We loved you. We never stopped loving you. We're so glad that you're doing better now. Correction done right works. And so all I've been saying all weekend is just, um, can we just try to be a church that does correction right? A church that, 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 that does it like Paul, who, who did it like Jesus, so that all of us in this body might be healthy. Let's be a church that is not mean, that is not coercive, that is not abusive, that is not manipulative, that does not shame, that brings correction in a healthy way, that is not afraid of correction, that does not shy away from correction. Listen, I'm just being transparent. This is what I'm working through in my life is being open to correction and saying, you know what, you can tell me if I'm wrong. Pull me to the side. Tell me, Judah, this right here, it's not gonna work. Now, it might take a few days before I return your text while I put my attitude together, but, <laughs> but can we be not harmful in correction? but open to correction. And, and, and we don't have to be afraid of correction because the Bible says that if we confess our sins, that he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. You know, there's nothing you can't be forgiven for. There's nothing that the Lord can't forgive you for. We don't have to be afraid of correction. The Bible says, for your Lord God is gracious and compassionate and he will not turn his face from you if you return to him. This is what the text says about the God that you just praised, about the God who you're committed to. So 
Let's be open to correction. Let's be the type that just link arms and say, listen, we're going to get here together. I know I need it. I know you need it. And I pray that you'll be open to it. Can I pray for you? Yeah, spirit of the living God, fall fresh on us. Father, we thank you so much for this example of how to do correction. And Father, it is a tough text, but it is one that we want to embody in the ways that are appropriate for our church today. Father, we want to be the type that can offer correction, that can help each other grow, and that do so from the right motivation, that do so because we love each other and we love each other too much to leave each other where we were. Father, we want to be like Jesus. We, we are Christians. We are Christ-like. We want to follow your model. And what we recognize, Lord, is that we need your help with that, that we can't do it by ourselves, that we have biases that, that bleed into our correction, and we have personal relationships that complicate our, our correction, and we have church hurts that, that complicate the way we receive correction. And so, Father, we're just asking for your help. We're asking for your guidance. You are our pastor, our leader, our shepherd, our king, and we trust you, Jesus, to help us navigate the complexity of trying to live right, of trying to live like you. So Father, I pray for my friends here and I pray for myself that you would just help us navigate that tense space that we might all become more and more like you every day. In Jesus' name, somebody shout amen. amen.